Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. I've been to a few cryptocurrency conferences over the last few years since starting New Money Review, and one of the topics or names that is guaranteed to generate booze is Chainalysis, uh, one of the blockchain analysis companies that looks at blockchain data and tries to draw uh, conclusions about who's doing what using cryptocurrencies. But it's a fact also that Chainalysis and its competitors uh, have clients from, from across the uh, spectrum. So they're not just working with government agencies, law enforcement, uh, tax authorities and so on, but also exchange businesses and financial institutions. So for this podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Philip Gradwell, who's Chief Economist at Chainalysis. And I've tried to, in, in the questions that follow, I've tried to look uh, without prejudice at what Chainalysis does and what the implications of its work are. Philip, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Uh, could you start by telling listeners a little bit about Chainalysis, who you are and who your clients are? Yeah, of course. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so Chainalysis is the blockchain analysis company. And what that means is we look at blockchain data, which is a record of all of the transactions people are making in cryptocurrency. And we structure that data so that rather than just seeing you know, transactions you know, going from transaction to transaction, we can actually understand, you know, the businesses and the people that are moving money and value between themselves. And that data set, you know, it really reveals, you know, the crypto economy, um, you know, what's actually going on on the blockchain, just rather than the set of transactions. And that has data sets been very useful for a number of different customers. Um, in particular, there are cryptocurrency businesses such as exchanges. They have to comply with you know, anti-money laundering regulation and therefore they need to understand the source of funds. And so we provide anti-money laundering software for them. We also sell, serve law enforcement. Um, they have a very similar uh, issue to the exchanges. You know, If there's criminal activity on the blockchain, they need to be able to go and investigate that. Say there's been ransomware or there's been fraud or there's been darknet markets. So they use our software to navigate the set of transactions to understand, you know, this Bitcoin, it's come from, you know, a darknet market and it's being cashed out at this place. Uh, and that allows them to piece together an investigation. And then the third set of clients we have is financial institutions who are offering bank accounts, for example, to cryptocurrency businesses. You know, they need to understand what's going on on the blockchain if they're to understand these businesses that they're banking and therefore offer them you know, fiat banking services to allow people to go in and out of crypto. Okay, thank you for explaining that. So let's take Bitcoin as an example then of a cryptocurrency. Uh, on the Bitcoin network, there are no um, you know, account names and account holders as such. You just have a a public address. So um, what challenges does that create for you know, your work? Yeah. And so the way that we actually think about you know, what's going on the blockchain is we actually think about the entities um, rather than the sort of named you know, individuals. Because you're quite right. There isn't you know, a blockchain address out there that's you know, Philips Bitcoin um, you know, with a label like that. So, and indeed, any individual can have as many addresses as they want. And there are some you know, exchanges, for example, that have you know, millions and millions uh, of addresses. So our you know, real sort of task is to understand from this big set of addresses, which set of addresses belong to a specific entity. And then in the case of 
you know, a public business that you can kind of go on, log on their website and, you know, generate a deposit address as part of their service, you know, then we can actually name that entity. So what we're trying to do is actually we focus on the, the cryptocurrency businesses that are operating the blockchain, identifying their addresses uh, and identifying that you know, they belong to that specific named entity. And then you know, all the other addresses kind of really assume that they belong to sort of private individuals. I mean, we can maybe say this set of addresses belongs you know, to a single wallet, for example, but not who it is. Um, and you know, that really is the core of the business is this mapping from addresses to entities. And then for the businesses, mapping you know, from these entities to a named entity. Okay, so your job is to kind of cluster the Bitcoin addresses you can see or anybody can see on the public network and then link them to a particular entity that you assume is behind that set of addresses. Yeah, that's right. And I guess in a sense, for at least the you know, the businesses, it's stronger than an assumption. You know, we will actually go and interact with that service. So, you know, we'll make an account on an exchange and generate a deposit address. And therefore, we actually you know, know uh, that this set of addresses belongs to that service. So, the, so for, you gave the example of, of an ex, a, a cryptocurrency exchange earlier. You know that you said they may have many millions of addresses, but they're not trying to obscure that the particular addresses are linked to them. They, these are known addresses for a particular entity. Yeah, um, I mean, sometimes they do try to obscure, uh, and I think also, you know, an important concept in trying to understand, you know, blockchain analysis is that we really think about these addresses as a graph. So, you know, if you ever remember sort of from maths at school, you can draw like a little circle, that's what we call a node, and you draw a line between them, and that's an edge. And, you know, it, it describes that network of how people are connected. Well, addresses are connected by transactions. And you know, an exchange, for example, will have certain patterns by which uh, all of its addresses are linked. And so we can go from, you know, a single address that we have some ground truth on to the broader set of addresses that that exchange controls. So it's not, you know, sometimes they're trying to make that pattern hard to follow. Um, other times, you know, they're not, all those addresses are there, they're linked by transactions, but you still got to be very careful to understand, you know, yes, this address that's linked to another address is actually part of, you know, the exchange and not part of, say, someone's private wallet or some other exchange. So that understanding, yes, we should group that address with this other address, but not this other one, you know, that is the really difficult technical problem. Okay. But the results you're uh, achieving through your data analysis, uh, you're presumably only arriving at a set of results that are probabilities. You're not saying that this is 100% certain to be so-and-so at the end of this, uh, behind, you know, behind this Bitcoin transaction. You're just you're, when you're grouping things together, you're presenting your results to your clients as a as a set of probabilities. Well, actually, um, we have to essentially minimise false positives. You know, our customers, you know, they're exchanges who are doing anti money laundering. So you really don't want to, you know, incorrectly label uh, the source of funds of one of their customers as from you know, an illicit source because then that customer will get locked down, it's a terrible customer experience, and the exchanges will come back to us and be like, hey, what did you do? Or even worse, uh, if you've got law enforcement customers and they build a case and there's a false positive in there, uh, then that can you know, undermine the case. So we actually 
you know, avoid using sort of machine learning techniques because you run this risk of adding a lot of false positives in. And instead, we run our clustering A on collecting as much ground truth as possible, and then B using sort ground of, truth meaning you 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 that's where you link you you you, you with a hundred percent certainty you link an address to a particular entity exactly um, yeah. and then from that we build these sort of almost deterministic um, models uh, that logically sort of say all of these connected addresses must belong to the same entity. Okay. Uh, how, how compared to the traditional financial system, you know, I, I'm going in, in very crude terms the way the anti-money laundering framework, you know, as I understand it, works. That you know, the framework that's been around for three or four decades, that basically divides the financial system into good guys and bad guys, and the, the bad guys are the money launderers or the terrorist financiers, whatever. It, you know, how big of a conceptual change is it to switch from the old system of, of banks and banks shielding the financial system from the bad guys to this new system of blockchains, data analysis, you know, you know, for the people involved in trying to create the, the rules for the new networks, how, how big a shift has this all been? Yeah. So I think there's two parts of that. There's how big a shift uh, it has been in practice and how big a shift it could be. Okay. I, I do think that the regulatory response has been to apply fiat models of anti-money laundering to the cryptocurrency space. You know, often the guidance has been to a cryptocurrency business, you know, you're a money service provider, therefore you're covered under exactly the same laws as fiat money service providers. So there's been almost a one-to-one -one mapping of that set of rules and regulations. Now, is that how it has to work um, and how it might work in the future? You know, I think the key thing uh, about blockchains is that you don't have any identities. You know, as I said, you can't actually see the name Philip Gradwell on any Bitcoin address. Uh, you only have the names of the entities, the, you know, the businesses. But what you do have is you have this complete transaction record. And that's in contrast to the fiat system, where if you're a bank, you do have a name. You know, you've got an account number and a sort code, and that's linked to a person. It's linked to an address, you know, and linked to all the other context uh, that you can get from credit score and so on. But what you don't have is a complete transaction record. You can only see, for example, my transactions uh, on the network that the bank operates, and if I send transactions out of that, they essentially disappear from view. So you've got this contrast between, on a blockchain, no identities but a complete transaction record. But in the fiat system, you've got identities, but an incomplete transaction record. And I do think that could result in a different model of anti-money laundering. But, you know, it's already complicated to get regulators to understand cryptocurrency. So to then say, hey, how about we do a different you know, model of anti-money laundering? At least it's been a step too far at this stage of the industry, but hopefully it'll get there. Okay, so there are, um, presumably there are lots of other implications of what you're saying for things like the way taxes assessed and calculated, how we monitor economic activity. That presumably there are lots of potential positives of of being able to see chains of transactions uh, for the way we manage the financial system. Yeah, absolutely, and in a sense, I mean, I'm the chief economist at Chainalysis, so I kind of came uh, to this with that view that actually having this transaction record helps you understand what's going on 
in a way that's just not possible in the fiat system. You know, there's like at the moment we're living under coronavirus and people are having to track the real time economic impact in uh, you know proximate ways. So they're looking at levels of air pollution in over China or they're you know looking at data they can get from online merchants and so on. What if you could actually look at the flow of value between you know different counterparties uh, in the economy and know that you've got that complete record? You could actually say, okay, this is the economic impact. This is who is being affected. Um, so like the level of insight without I'm honest, you know, going you know, invading privacy because all you're doing is you're looking at just the overall flows between all the different entities, rather than saying, "Okay, this is Philip." Um, is a level of insight you just don't get in other economic systems. And this is something, presumably, that uh, state-backed digital currencies could allow, uh, you know, if and when they were introduced, but only at a national level. Yeah, it, that's quite right. Um, and again, I mean, you know, there's is the worry there that if they also tie identity in onto state-backed digital currency, then you have both identities and a complete transaction record, and maybe that is um, too much. Uh, but certainly, they would have this complete view of all of the transactions uh, that are going on, uh, and therefore could use that data, you know, hopefully in a positive way. Right. Um, some very interesting uh, topics there, but let's let's talk about some practical. Um, you know, uses of your technology and and some things you've recently been been looking at at chain analysis. So recently, you've identified records Bitcoin inflows to exchanges. I think in the last couple of months, what do you think caused that, and what are the implications for Bitcoin? Yeah, so I mean, as anyone who's been following financial markets over uh, you know since the middle of March, it's been a wild time, and you know, I really do think that's driven by coronavirus and the broader economic impacts that has. Um, and you know, in particular, if you go to the 12th and the 13th of March, where we saw you know, a major fall in the price of Bitcoin, you know, nearly 40% at one point, um, that's when we saw really large Bitcoin inflows into exchanges. So you know, in the year to date before the 9th of March, on an average day, you would have seen about you know, 52,000 Bitcoin going into uh, exchanges. On the 12th of March, you saw around 274,000 Bitcoin going in. And then on the 13th of March, there were 336,000 Bitcoin going into exchanges. So, you know, vastly higher amounts. And, you know, the price then subsequently uh, crashed as those people, um, you know, sent their Bitcoin to exchanges to sell. So it's basically people raising cash by sending their Bitcoin holdings to exchanges to sell and get fiat currency in exchange uh get fiat currency also get tether um you know not all of this was going to exchanges with fiat off-ramps okay what does your what can your data analysis uh, tell us about um what's going on in the bitcoin mining sector yeah so you know bitcoin miners they're a, a source of fascination for people in the industry um and and in a sense i think they're seen as a bit mysterious you know they're these Server farms dotted around the world that you know keep this decentralized protocol secure and confirm transactions, and you know we don't quite know who's behind it. Uh, and there are a few of these mining pools that coordinate the activity of uh, a much more disparate set of you know miners, the people that actually own the hardware. Um, but you can see there 
transactions on the blockchain. You know, where are the people that receive the block reward whenever a new block is mined? And then because these mining pools are doing that mining on behalf of the miners, they then have to distribute that uh, to the miners who, because they often have to cover their costs, for example, their hardware costs, and in particular their electricity costs, will then send that Bitcoin onto exchanges. And so we recently did some analysis looking at this. And um, the concern that people have around you know, the mining pools is that the power is really concentrated. Um, you know, if there's more than you know, 50% of the hash rate controlled by a mining pool, they could technically decide uh, you know, not to include certain transactions or they could uh, you know, double spend uh, a transaction that had been made. And what we saw is that, yes, you know, mining pools, they can often have you know, large amounts of hash rate, but there seems to be quite a bit of competition between them. So the miners, you know, who are the ones who are sort of delegating their hash rate to the mining pools, um, will often you know, switch. Um, and perhaps also they will distribute the hash rate across different mining pools. And so I think this you know, concern that, look, these mining pools have got too much power is actually uh, overblown. You know, the miners do seem to be uh, switching between mining pools and keeping them in check in, in a sense. And so then, on-chain data can, can help us uh, you know, g- gain some reassurances about the long-term viability of the network. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can, it, it really showed that you know, miners and mining pools respond to economic incentives, really. And what is in their best interest is to you know, keep the protocol safe and secure. Uh, and you know, that is what maintains the value of the Bitcoin that they mine and they hold. Okay, and 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 at a head uh, headline level, um, the 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 amount of processing power devoted to Bitcoin has gone up quite substantially since uh, a year or two ago. I know it's dipped in the last few weeks, but uh, it's been it's still several times higher than uh, I think 2018 after the price crash. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what about um, on-chain data? The type you analyze um, in in respect of um, the trading volumes that exchanges report, because there have been a lot of stories that exchanges may be faking their reported trading volumes to try and you know, propel themselves up the league tables or attract more clients. Can, can on-chain data tell us anything about what's going on at the trading level? Yes, it can. Um, and to talk a bit more about you know this trading uh, or sort of fake volumes discussion, it, I actually think it's one of the most important issues for the industry to try and resolve because it undermines trust in basically everything. You know, if you talk to someone who's an outside investor and they're like, I can only make investment decisions based on data and you're telling me that the most fundamental data set, how much is being traded, is actually fake. They're like, oh, I'm just going to go do something else now. Um, yeah. And you know, it's not always the exchanges that are faking the volumes. Sometimes they can create incentives for uh, their own users to sort of wash trade. For example, if they get volume-based discounts. So, you know, it's a bit complicated to understand exactly why this phenomenon has arisen. Um, but the thing that's harder to fake um, is actually your on-chain volume. You know, you can to fake your trade volume, you can either just uh, edit your API as you publish your data out to the rest of the world, or you can give your traders various incentives. 
But to fake your on-chain volume, the amount of Bitcoin that's actually moving on the blockchain into your exchange, well, you'd have to own that Bitcoin and you know, you'd have to move it around. And that's a lot of capital to tie up. There's some risks with you know, moving it around like that. And you'd need really quite a lot of capital uh, to make your volumes look you know, very different. And so when we look at the ratio of how many Bitcoin are traded per Bitcoin that you know, enter an exchange you know, on the blockchain, you can really see big differences between exchanges. Uh, some in the more established exchanges where we trust the data, you know, on average, it's around six to one. But there are then some exchanges that have ratios that are in the kind of thousands of Bitcoin traded per Bitcoin moved on chain. And it's when you get to those kind of high ratios, then I get a bit suspicious. Okay. And I, I, um, are you reporting these uh, ratios for different exchanges or is that just something your clients can see? Uh, so, I mean, currently it is just something that our customers can see. Uh, it is something that we're going to be rolling out a little bit more broadly as, as a health measure of what's going on in the ecosystem. Okay. So, there, I mean, there's an increasing number of exchange rating services now. So, you know, this would be another additional data point to help uh, people identify which which exchanges are being truthful about what they're doing and which are being maybe uh, less truthful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you recently published a crypto crime report, which uh, you know attracted quite a lot of uh, press attention. I, I wrote a couple of articles about it. Um, could we talk a bit, in you know, in general terms, about what kinds of crime cryptocurrencies are facilitating? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think the first thing to say is, uh, you know, there is a bit of a misconception around cryptocurrencies and criminal activity. Um, you know, I think originating from the fact that the Silk Road was the first major use case, that was the first darknet market. But, you know, the, the sort of heyday of uh, cryptocurrencies being used for criminal activity has really declined. Um, you know, the main use case really is now trading and speculation. And so, you know, while the absolute dollar amount of criminal activity on the blockchain you know, has increased in recent years, its percentage of the overall transaction volume has decreased. And in fact, is now, uh, I think in 2019, was 1.1% uh, of all the value transacted. That said, there are some serious crimes that happen. Um, actually, the most, the largest crime in 2019 were Ponzi schemes and scams. Uh, in particular, there was the Plus Token scam, uh, but also a few others. So uh, that is where people essentially say, hey, come and invest in you know, this new thing, uh, you'll make lots of money and maybe they pay out to a few people, uh, but they're paying out to those people with the funds that new people are investing in the scheme. And then the people that organize the Ponzi scheme, you know, they run off with some of those funds. Um, so that actually drove most of the numbers this year. And then the second largest uh, type of criminal activity in terms of the value was darknet markets. And, uh, you know, they're interesting story this year is there's actually been a lot of law enforcement action against darknet markets but it is a real sort of game of whack-a-mole if you close one down another one will pop up um, we actually also sponsored some academic research that looked at how vendors migrated between uh, different uh, darknet markets as they were closed down and so you know the focus is now how can we target the vendors uh, of these darknet markets Okay, so they're, they're presumably then, then the parallels to the way um, criminal activity occurs with you know either cash or um, you know other tools. You, you, you can close down one avenue of uh, of, of, of um, criminals seeking to cash in their gains, but they will find another way of moving things around. 
Yeah. And you know, I think that's a really good point is that things like Ponzi schemes and darknet markets, they're very much, you know, uh, fiat world crimes just happening on the blockchain. There are a couple of crimes where I guess the blockchain helps, although they have existed before cryptocurrencies uh, were there, in particular ransomware. Uh, so you know, ransomware, it's where people download an, you know, a piece of virus uh, from, say, an email attachment, and then it will encrypt their system. And you know they're asked, you know, go and send some Bitcoin to this address if you want us to decrypt all of your files. That has been on the rise, uh, and it's uh, splitting into sort of two. There's what we call ransomware as a service, where you know anyone could go and buy the software to conduct a ransomware campaign um, from you know someone who's sort of built that program, uh, and that often targets a larger number of you know victims at a sort of on a smaller scale. And then there are more targeted uh, ransomware campaigns where people will actually you know target a specific institution like a specific business or indeed and this is pretty terrible often targeting hospitals and there have actually been some cases recently uh with everything going on um and in that case the ransom requests are much larger and uh they've done their research so often they'll use a much more sophisticated uh social engineering or sort of what's called spear phishing attack to get the ransomware code uh onto the internal systems. So, can I ask you? Can I ask you a question about one of the uh, the, the scams you mentioned, the Ponzi, the Plus Token Ponzi scheme, which you wrote about at length in your crypto crime report? You, uh, as I remember it, you, you your your analysis showed that uh, the, the scammers had raised this money. They'd used some over the counter brokers to try and launder the coins, and they'd managed to cash out a certain proportion of the Bitcoin that they'd raised, but. Um, not all of it, and that brings me to the question of you know what happens with the because you can see which addresses this this, this uh, uh, Bitcoin that was raised from these gullible investors uh, has moved to, and I, I understand that a lot of it is still kind of stuck at those addresses. What what happens to that Bitcoin that's stuck? And in, in broader terms, does that lead to a certain part of the Bitcoin network being kind of frozen or you know only tradable at a discount? You know what happens to coins that are associated with? illicit activities or i should say addresses that are assess- associated with with past illicit activities yeah so to take that in, in two parts on plus token actually um most of the bitcoin that uh the plus token scam has raised has actually now been cashed out um you know they had good timing uh essentially they did stop uh sort of in december but from january they started cashing out again uh, and they had actually pretty much cashed out almost all of it before the recent price crash um so yeah we don't think plus token was responsible for any of the recent price decline and in a sense they are you know cashed out um but you raise this bigger question of you know is there sort of tainted bitcoin versus not tainted bitcoin and and do, do we risk a sort of split in fungibility um and you know i think it's important to think hard about this um you can't you know i think the way that you know we at chain analysis think about sort of illicit activity it's not the sort of transaction that's at fault it's you know the entity that's making those transactions it's the decisions of a criminal to you know 
commit a crime and then try and launder their funds. And that's why we put so much focus on going from you know, just a set of transactions to understanding the entities that control those you know, addresses and transactions. And so when Bitcoin moves to an entity that you, know, you consider has taken enough action, has you know, got due diligence, isn't associated with criminal activity, if they then send on their Bitcoin, you sort of have to accept it. Um, and so this model of actually tracing value not through in what Bitcoin's called the unspent transaction output or the UTXO chain, but rather tracking it from entity to entity allows you to make this decision. Okay, this entity, you know, they receive funds from an illicit source. Um, did they freeze it? Did they report it to the authorities? Did they try and give it back to any of the victims? Um, and if they did, then you're like, well, you know, actually, if they send me some Bitcoin, that's fine for me to accept. So, you know, we haven't seen any evidence of a two-tiered, you know, Bitcoin market, and we also, you know, build our product um, so that there is this more nuanced view of the world that actually um, we're concerned about responsibility between, you know, entity to entity, rather than, you know, saying, oh well, this particular, you know, Bitcoin, as it were, is associated with a bad activity. And presumably, um, the fact that Bitcoin is a global network and distributed network, there's no sort of central uh, person in charge. You could have different uh, users in different parts of the world taking different views on whether something is clean or tainted. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I think it's actually sort of deeper than that. Um, because there's a common transaction record, everyone has sort of the same data. Uh, I mean, I guess you do need perhaps all the you know clustering identification that we do at Chainalysis, but at least all of our customers have the same data set. Um, and therefore, it really is about differences in you know opinion and and what we call risk models. So some exchanges will have a different risk appetite from others. Um, and it actually means if you're trying to understand, you know, am I going to interact with an entity? Uh, that's involved in illicit activity, you do need to start adding quite a lot you know, extra context uh, to you know, the data that's on the blockchain. You need to go, okay, who is this entity? Where do they operate? What are their risk policies? What does their you know, KYC process look like? Uh, and that's something that we help financial institutions really navigate. Okay. Um, th th it's been a very interesting chat. I'd just like, to, I'd like you to ask you uh, for some, not predictions, but uh, maybe to share with listeners what you're looking at uh, in the remainder of 2020, you know, what are your key areas of interest when it comes to blockchain analysis? So we could kind of keep an eye on these trends going forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, I will say we're obviously living in a period of really significant uncertainty, so it's hard to uh, look beyond that. Um, yeah. I do worry what the effect of coronavirus will be on, you know, people and the economy. So I think there's a, in terms of where the Bitcoin price is going, potentially a rough patch if things do get worse. But I think on the other side of that is a really interesting question. Um, you know, we have entered, you know, the period of unlimited quantitative easing. Um, so in terms of a Bitcoin narrative, that is potentially very positive. And then I think in terms of blockchain analysis, you know, 
we are i've led a research team at chainalysis i've been there for over two and a half years now and we've been working to try and understand you know what's going on on this crypto economy and you know we've really built a lot of tools and understanding and so i think the ability uh, of us to give real descriptions of the actual activity and use cases uh, is increasing very very rapidly and you know we're going to be publishing more and more of that so you know, we can even dive in and say well what does tether usage um, you know in certain regions of the world look like um, you know does that suggest there's real adoption you know actually how many Bitcoin have been held for you know how long and when they're sent to an exchange um, you know who what were the characteristics of the people that were sending them? So I think we're also going to get that extra level of detail and nuance about you know, activity on the blockchain, which I think will help people get much more comfortable with it. Um, and that's kind of really yeah my hope and my aim, what I'm working on for uh, the next few months. So, so a, a richer and richer data set for researchers like your company and, and anybody really wants to look into what's going on on blockchains. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great, Philip. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a very interesting chat. No, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this new Money Review podcast. New Money Review is an independent publication and we rely on support from our listeners and readers to survive. If you'd like to support us, you can do so in two ways. On the home page of our site, you'll find our Patreon or Fiat Currency account in the right-hand column, about halfway down the home page. Or you can give us a cryptocurrency donation in either Bitcoin or Ethereum. Our addresses are also on the right side of our home page. Thank you for your support.